Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Family Stories. This is the show written by you, our listeners. Each week we go through all your correspondence and choose half a dozen stories to share with the rest of the We Have Ways community. Sometimes these tales are extraordinary, recounting terrifying adventures in Europe or Africa or in the Far East. Sometimes they tell of the small details back home, 
that all add up to the greatest narrative event of the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this week's selection. We start this week with something truly extraordinary. Mike Atkinson got in touch to tell us about his mother, Molly Fox, and her friendship with a young, pre-war, Douglas Bader. I'll let Mike take up the tale. My mother, Molly Fox, used to go dancing with Douglas Bader when they were quite young. She lived with her family at Hallbank in Barnsley, and her dad was the owner of a brewery. I'm not sure how the family knew Douglas Bader, but he did aerobatics in his plane overhaul bank. He gave Molly a photograph of himself, signed, With Love from Douglas, as well as his mother's gold locket, with the word Mizpah embossed across it. Mizpah jewellery was generally given to a loved one during a period of long separation such as military service. It was given as a forget-me-not. In 1931, Douglas had his flying accident and lost both legs. He wrote to Molly's father from the hospital, suggesting he might be looking for work if he was unable to fly again. Here's the personal letter Douglas wrote to my grandfather. Dear Sir, Thank you very much for your letter, which was very welcome. I am afraid they have cut off both of my legs, but they have to do more than that to stop me flying. If they will not let me fly... I am coming out of the REF. I shall have to get someone to give me an opening in business and start again because I am only 21 and my brain is not too sluggish. I think I could be all right in business if I can get the chance. I rather gather I shall be all right with artificial legs as my left one has been cut off below the knee leaving me the knee joint all right. The right is just above so I shall only want a very short piece on my left one. I have got to have another operation on my right stump which is annoying as I have just recovered from two amputations, and they are very painful operations. I am no more of a coward than anyone else, but I don't particularly want any more pain. However, I shall get over it all right. They gave up hope twice over me at the beginning, and I beat them to it, so I am not losing now. The two surgeons who saw me when I was brought in after the crash said that they could do nothing for me. It was hopeless. Fortunately, the sister who was there took pity on me and fetched the senior surgeon, a Harley Street man. He put me on the table at once and removed my right leg, which was only on by a thread. Anyhow, he could not save it. My other leg was hopelessly broken up. They tried setting it and finally cut it off as well. One thinks a lot when one is like this. At several times, I wish I'd killed myself instead of just breaking myself up, but I think perhaps the future may hold a little for all that I am missing. It's a great grief because this has not affected my love of flying one atom. However, if I cannot, I intend to make a success of something else. You might give my love to all your family. I cannot write to them all as it is rather difficult. Cheerio. Yours ever, Douglas. P.S. I crashed through doing a very dangerous manoeuvre and being careless about it. Mike continues. My mother married in 1934 and moved to India. My grandfather regularly posted newspaper cuttings to her about Douglas before our family finally returned to England in 1949. Strangely, my own father had his leg amputated in 1965. Douglas came to our house in his Alvis car with a Spitfire emblem on the bonnet 
and drove my mother to the hospital to see my father. The staff in Burton-on-Trent were all very pleased to welcome Sir Douglas Bader to their hospital. And this story is from James McNeil. My great-uncle, Michael Lynch, was trained as a driver and an NCO. Sometime before D-Day, Michael and his men were paraded in front of a shed, but had no idea why. Their officer made a serious speech about the necessity for absolute secrecy concerning what they were about to see. The shed door opened, and out rumbled a six-wheel drive amphibious vehicle, known as a duck. It was Michael's first encounter with the revolutionary vehicle, and he didn't have a clue what it was for. Some months later, once they were all qualified, the unit made a great show of driving out of camp and heading off up north. The unit even got far enough north for Michael to be permitted to visit his family, who lived just outside Glasgow. On reaching their destination, the ducks were driven into sheds, onto low loaders, covered with tarpaulins, and taken back south. The soldiers were thoroughly confused and presumed it was more army nonsense, perhaps part of fortitude. Michael's D-Day was relatively unremarkable, though he did describe fishing contraband out of the water as the ducks shuttled back and forth from the beach. Skipping forward to Operation Market Garden, Michael crossed the River Vaal under fire while fighting the River Tide. He said his boys were painting red crosses on their ducks, despite carrying ammunition. The Germans weren't fooled and opened fire. Michael reckoned that misusing the Red Cross insignia was acceptable because they were the good guys. Michael, his men, their ducks and trucks were then ordered to fill a small gap in the line. They drove forward in the dead of night and took up their assigned position. In the early dawn, Michael's officer crept further forward and was confronted by some type of German armour. It was the inevitable, unlikely and ubiquitous Tiger tank. He immediately retraced his steps and told his chaps to quickly withdraw before the German armour made short work of their very soft-skinned vehicles. Nobody noticed they were gone, not the Germans nor Michael's CO. Later, Michael was sent forward by the CO to recover a duck that was stuck close to the front line. Michael got close to the vehicle and noticed dead German and British men lying around it. He asked an officer for an update and was told each side had been unsuccessfully trying to recover the vehicle all day. Michael explained his own orders to the officer. The officer turned to his radio man and called down artillery fire on the stranded duck. He then wrote a note for Michael that said, Vehicle destroyed by enemy fire. At some point, one of Michael's men accidentally shot a French civilian. The soldier was distraught and consumed with worry. Michael told him it was just another sad death in a brutal war. Michael also described an incident in which a wounded German soldier killed wounded British soldiers in an ambulance they were sharing. The German was summarily shot and word got around about the incident. The flow of German prisoners of war down the line dwindled to almost nothing, and this went on for a few days. Eventually, a senior officer called the NCOs together and said, OK, enough, we want to see German prisoners. Michael made it all the way to Germany and the Occupation Army. He was given orders not to fraternise with the locals, who it was said could not be trusted, but his boys disobeyed the order. As they drove into a nameless German town, all that could be seen were old men, women and children, and all of them starving. The British soldiers broke out their rations and gave them away.
This is from Alex McKenzie. Hi, We Have Ways. Thank you so much for all of your efforts. I'm an avid listener to the podcast. My grandfather, Philip Laffin, passed away in 2005. He was an incredibly proud man and rarely spoke of his experiences during the war. Well, that was the case until I came along. As a curious youngster, I asked all sorts of questions. Questions he probably hadn't been asked before, and perhaps questions that he didn't really want to answer, but he did so with patience and good grace. Grandad was with the 1st Battalion, Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Regiment. But more importantly to him, he was a chindit. After he died, my dad kindly mounted and framed his medals, which includes his Burma star. In the same frame, I have a photo of him in his bush hat. Sometimes I think I've had a bad day, but when I come home and see that picture and those medals, I know that my bad day is incomparable to the experiences that Grandad had in the jungle. I have a short poem of Grandad's, describing his time in 61 column in Burma. Grandad wrote it with an oppo, who I only know as J.F. Evans. Grandad has written 1943 to 1944 at the top of the first page. An Incident in the Life of the Chindits Marching along in a column, every man looking solemn, marching, marching all the time. The faithful mule with heavy load, the muleteer cursing the road. To man and beast the trek is hell, and where we are going no one can tell. Everything is quiet, no one speaks. Maybe a harness softly creaks, just one curse or cough aloud will bring the enemy in a crowd. From head of column, a whistle blows. Tis a short rest, everyone knows, fifteen minutes, animals too. Mules and bullocks munch bamboo. On the road again once more, another three miles to the score, the next halt will be midday, with a cup of char and rations K. We rest an hour, maybe more. Word comes round, we move at four. The wireless opened, they contact base, Another supply drop just in case. The fires are set, we await the word. Until the planes are faintly heard, the light up is quickly given and the flames have slowly risen. Parachutes float down in the breeze. Mules stand by amongst the trees. The boys rush out to collect the Ks. They may have to last many days. The boys of the RAF are our lifeline. Sure they are, a treat, always on time. They drop us our rations and our mail. Yes, The boys from above never fail. Through monsoons and zeros they do fly to drop us our ammo, give us supply. Now, back on the trail, we travel due south to smash the Japanese grub line and shut his mouth. The marching is hard, the mountains steep, with monsoon on the rivers are deep. But we are chindits, so we are told, daring and fearless, brave and bold, And the man who led this fearless band, his name lives on throughout the land. The man who gave the Chindits fame and beat the Japs at their own game. So we the columns to Burma came to keep Old Wingate's famous name. We are almost near a big Jap base. Soon we meet him face to face. Weeks of marching has brought us here. The fight with Jap is very near. In jungle a base is formed. We hope the Japs have not been warned. Three days rest, just what we need. Plenty of sleep and a damn good feed. A patrol moves out to look for Jap. Patrol commander consults the map. Every man with spirits high, never thinking that he may die. The column now is far behind. Where are Japs they have to find? They rest a while, then move on. 
for it is a job that must be done. A shot rings out, a man drops dead with a Japanese bullet in his head. Orders out the men obey to seek aloft where Nippons lay. All around the jungle green chinned its eyes are very keen. High upon his lofty perch, he does not see the chinned its search. Now they have him ringed around, one false move and he hits the ground. Still they have him yet to find, so to a bush a rope they bind, one sharp pull on the bait, the sniper fires and seals his fate. The good old Bren, with a rat-tat-tat, has found the tree that shields the rat, although dead he does not fall. He obeyed his ancestor's call. We are now quite near a Jap-held village, homes like this the Japs do pillage, crawling to the edge of jungle. This is a job none must bungle. Areki finds there's very few squatting round the cooking fires while chindit pliers cut the wires. Patrol commander lays his plan. With an added word, kill all you can. The three-inch mortar is supporting. They start to blast the flimsy fort. After the mortar's devastation, the boys charge in with determination. The Japs, surprised, run amok, unprepared for chindit shock. Dead and dying lay around. A real live Jap cannot be found, two comrades dead and one man hit, but a job well done by Chindit Wit. For wounded man a litter made, two crosses mark their comrades' grave. They turn around and make for base, lest two dead men and a stretcher case. Of Chindit heroes, brave and bold, these few verses have been told. Alex continues. It's been funny reading this back. It sounds weird, but the pages smell of him. I'm putting them back away to try and save that smell for another day. I miss that quiet, brave man very much. Thanks for everything. Alex McKenzie And this story is from Mike King. We Have Ways has been the real silver lining of this last year for me, a tonic for the constant Covid and Brexit news. It inspired me to join the independent company. Well, thank you for that, Mike. Anyway, Mike says, As a teacher myself, the Family Stories segment made me reflect that the war wasn't all fighting and heroics in battle, but was also experienced by children. This put me in mind of my granddad's story. Daniel Raymond Dent was born in 1929 in Lewisham. His Irish mother had named him Donnell. However, somebody, possibly my great-grandfather, a London engine driver and First World War Machine Gun Corps veteran, thought better of it and registered him as Daniel. Birth certificate or not, he was called Don by all who knew him for the rest of his life. Living in London when war broke out in 1939 and with the family fearing for their safety, the decision was made that Don would join the rest of his classmates from St Winifred's in being evacuated to Kent. Young Don was given further instruction that he was responsible for his brother Michael and two cousins, Derek and Kevin. Under no circumstances was he to allow them to be separated. They were to stay together. The boys arrived in Chillum, Kent, and evacuees began to be allocated to local families. Don, with his mother's words ringing in his ears, steadfastly refused to allow his brother or cousins to be allocated anywhere unless they were together. As the day wore on, and with people growing impatient with this belligerent boy, a well-to-do woman appeared and agreed to take all four of the boys. Off they all went, 
and they found themselves at a 15th-century hall, referred to by historic England as Cumberland House. And what a place! There was a maid, a cook, and several servants. There was also a gardener who was none too pleased to have his precious gardens invaded by some raggy-ass kids from south-east London. There was also a story, verified by all four of the boys, that they witnessed the ghost of a lady walk through their bedroom wall. Later, back in London at Cardinal Vaughan School, Don was evacuated again with his classmates to Beaumont College in Old Windsor. He hated it there and was determined to run away back to London. He found his way home and, with his mother taking refuge in the Norfolk countryside, his father simply shrugged and took him along on his rounds as an ARP warden. Don enthralled me as a child, telling me about riding buses or hiding under the bed with the old man through an air raid or listening to the sound of a doodlebug, followed by the silence as the engine cut out. This is just the story of an ordinary little boy's war, but the resilience and character shown are absolutely indicative of the spirit of the time. Kind regards, Mike King. This is from John Wood. My family never spoke much about my Uncle Don's career in the Navy during the war. This was not because of any lack of pride, but simply because they knew very few details to share. Donald Robert William Baker of the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve was born in 1920 and was brought up in the heart of London's East End. He was an intelligent boy, friendly, charming and well-liked. His nickname in the family, and to all who knew him, was Rice, on account of his great love of his mum's rice pudding. The family home was in Friars Road, East Ham, and it was when this house was being cleared out in 2016 that we discovered a plain brown manila envelope. It had been carefully placed in a bedside cabinet drawer beneath a paper drawer liner and had apparently been undisturbed for more than 60 years. Inside were some papers from Don's time in the Royal Navy. He joined up in July 1940 and after training was posted to HMS Pretoria Castle in February 1941. The Pretoria Castle's job was Atlantic Convoy Defence and she also took part in Operation Tiger to help relieve the Siege of Malta. Don's role on ship was as a signaller and he spent 18 months with her. He was given leave in July 1942 and wired his mum. The original telegram was neatly folded in the manila envelope where it had lain undisturbed. It read, All well. Let you know arrival home later. Stand by for rice pudding. Love, Don. Shortly after this, he received the news that he had been identified as a commission and warrant candidate, someone with officer potential. He was commissioned in May 1943 as temporary acting sub-lieutenant. With his papers in the envelope was a receipt from Mossbros for £41.19 shillings for his officer's uniform. This would have been a massive outlay for his parents, but it was no doubt paid with pride as the careful preservation of the receipt testifies. He was posted in July 1943 to the newly launched HMS Wallasey, an armed trawler and part of the Royal Naval Patrol Service. Don was 23 years old and one of three officers and 37 ratings on board. Their role was to help protect convoys from mines as well as U-boat and S-boat attacks. In the early hours of January 1944, they were patrolling some five miles off the coast of Cornwall in Mounts Bay as part of a defensive shield constructed for convoy WP-457. It was a fine, clear night, with light winds and a nearly full moon. Those on the bridge of the Wallasey 
strained their eyes into the darkness out at sea, on the lookout for enemy activity. Unknown to them, they were looking in the wrong direction. A small flotilla of seven S-boats under the command of Lieutenant Commander Carl Muller had been lying in wait very close to the coast near Port Curnow. Some reports say that the flotilla had been spotted by sentries at a nearby radar station, but it was assumed they must be British boats as they were so close to shore. Muller launched their attack from the landward side, firing numerous torpedoes, one of which struck the Wallasey. The ship floundered and sank before dawn. Only five of the 40 crew survived. Along with the Wallasey, three other Allied vessels were lost in the attack. In the Manila envelope in Friars Road, there was one further document, a parish magazine from St Albans Church, East Ham, dated February 1944. One paragraph of the typewritten pages was circled in pencil as follows. The parish has had sad news. This time, Don Rice Baker is reported missing, assumed drowned. Mr and Mrs Baker got the wire after Christmas. Don was one of our nicest lads. He had just got his commission. We assure Mr and Mrs Baker of our deepest sympathy in their terrible loss. Don's name is inscribed on the Royal Naval Patrol Service Memorial at Lowestoft. That's it for this week. Thank you for sending us your stories. It's wonderful to share them with listeners around the world. If you've got a family story you'd like us to consider, please send it to wehavewastepodcast at gmail.com. Remember to make the subject of the email family stories. You can also post your story on the members' site, which is patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks for listening.